following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This morning as we begin um, to think about our summer read, which is Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, I want to I begin with um, a quiz about Rochester. Right? Obviously, this is where we begin with this topic, right? <laughs> um, Rochester has some famous companies. What are the most famous companies in Rochester? Swigels. <laughs> we, we will grill together after the service. That is part of the point of this time together. Um, I was thinking of one that starts with X. Xerox, right? Okay, what is Xerox famous for making? Copiers, right? Photocopiers. Um, did you know that Xerox did not begin... It's company, it's life as a company, producing photocopiers. Xerox actually began uh, making paper, specifically photographic paper. Kind of interesting, given that Kodak is the other big one in town. Um, But they made photographic paper and photographic equipment. Another famous company, not a Rochester company by any stretch, but that you might not know, started out making paper, is Nokia, right? You know Nokia, right? The cell phone giant of the early 2000s. They actually got in the phone biz in the 60s, before cell phones were a thing. Uh, But they started out as a paper company as well. This kind of thing is actually quite common, where a company will start out with one purpose and end up with another purpose for which it becomes famous. Did you know that uh, Avon Cosmetics was originally... uh, just a perfume that was given away as a freebie by a, a door-to-door book salesman. And the, uh, at the time, there were housewives at home during the day, and, that's so, and it was, that was his way of kind of getting his foot in the door. And uh, the housewives loved, loved the perfume more than they loved the books, so he changed his business model. A similar thing happened with Wrigley. Wrigley is famous for what? Chewing gum, right. Uh, chewing gum uh, was, a, was a giveaway uh, for another salesman who sold... Um, Oh, shoot, I forget. What did he sell? Well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, the point is, it wasn't gum. <laughs> and these, these free pieces of gum that everybody loved became uh, the Wrigley business model. And I wonder, has anything like that ever happened to you where you started out, set out to do something specific, you had a vision in mind and a goal in mind, and then circumstances or inspiration or something happened, and, and you ended up doing something entirely different As I was thinking about that, that fact, uh, that that happens sometimes, it occurred to me, Artisan is filled with a lot of artists and scientists. Right? Now, I'm not talking about vocation or anything like that, but if, who in the room, by show of hands, identifies in some way as either an artist or a scientist? Hands up. Right. There's a lot of you, okay? Um, and some of you who probably should have put your hands up anyway, but we'll, we'll talk about it another time. <laughs> Artists and scientists are both quite familiar with this, this trend, aren't you? Right? How many artists have started out m- painting one painting or writing one song or sculpting one sculpture and ended up with something entirely different? Right? And sometimes better. How many scientists have uh, made one hypothesis and started to test it and found that something else altogether was true? And that's not considered a failure. It's considered learning. Here's the thing. 
if you are unable or unwilling to recognize that turning point in the process with whatever it is you're doing, if you staunchly insist on going forward with what your original idea was, despite where the facts or inspiration or circumstances arising send you, then you're going to quite possibly miss out on something really great. And it's not as easy as it sounds to make that transition, is it? Those of you who are artists and scientists and others who have had this kind of experience, in those moments where you realize your, your dream or your vision might be dying, <laughs> it's very frightening and even painful to let go of it and to, to go forward with whatever else might seem to be evolving or emerging in that moment. When we uh, founded the ministry that would eventually become Artisan Church, our very first value, the one that we didn't even have to think about, was community. We have five values, as you know, awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice, but community comes forth in that list because it sounds good that way. Community was the first value of the ministry that eventually became Artisan Church, and it was a very easy thing. It was a no-brainer value for us because we were starting this ministry as a group of people who are very close to each other relationally and geographically. So community was our first value. We had a very definite idea of what Christian community should look like. We had a visionary dream that uh, we were filled with. And so it's really fascinating and um, a little bit eerie, if I'm being honest, that we are kicking off our second decade as a church by reading this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together, which I had read before, but I didn't know the, I didn't, hadn't memorized the table of contents when we decided to use it. And what is the first chapter in Bonhoeffer's book Life Together? It's community. So let's take a look together. Um, and you don't have to um, open your books if you have them. Uh, this is my copy of Life Together. You guys probably have a pretty green one that looks more like the slides on the screen there. By the way, we have one left. If anybody wants it, you can, uh, you can have it. It's already been paid for. You can take it when you come to get communion. Um, and if you'd like to put 10 bucks in the offering for it, you can, but it's, it's covered. You don't have to do that. Uh, I'm going to read to you um, a few words when Bonhoeffer gets going about Christian community. It's on page 26 if you'd like to look at it, but you don't have to. The serious Christian... It's me, probably most of you, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be, and to try to realize it. Yep, that's me. I like this book so far. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Wait, what? I don't want my dreams shattered. I want community. Surely he has more to say. Oh, here we go. Page 27. Uh, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. This is getting worse. God hates visionary dreaming. 
It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. I don't want to read this book anymore. (laughs) I actually need that for later. (laughs) Shouldn't do that. Ouch. Well, we did find that was true when we started this community about 10 years ago. We had our, uh, our Xerox moments <laughs> where we realized that paper wasn't the game we needed to be in. That wasn't the type of community we were supposed to build. We had our Avon moments where we realized that we, we thought our community was going to be selling books <laughs> door to door. And it turned out that uh, the, the perfume that we just tucked in there as an afterthought was the real community that we needed to be working on. And we had to let our dreams die a little bit. And we've had to do that more than once over the last decade plus. Perhaps we've even had to let our dreams die in some way or another since, since you've been here. Even some of you have been here a very short time. Maybe you had, maybe you're a visionary dreamer. Maybe you came to this church with a very definite idea of what community should look like and, and that you did not find that was what you found here. <laughs> so what's the antidote? What is the solution? What's the guiding principle? Well, Bonhoeffer talks about the difference between a spiritual community and a human community and how they're governed by spiritual love and human love. And he, he refers to that passage that we read at the call to worship, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. If you have a Bible, would you just flip that open to that? It's, it's all the way, almost at the very back. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, While we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This business of light versus darkness. It's an easy metaphor to catch on to, but it's maybe a little bit abstract. And... Many of us, I would wager to say probably most of us, don't really like this binary, uh, that's the science word, um, black and white, that's the humanities word, distinction. We don't like that there's no gray. We don't like the idea that we're either in or we're out. We don't like the idea that our community is either a human community governed by darkness or a spiritual community governed by light. And... um, in true postmodern fashion, I'm not going to try to, you know, disavow you of your preference for gray. I'm not going to try to convince you that it's an either-or, zero-sum game, binary choice. What I think I can convince you of, and perhaps Bonhoeffer can help us here, is that human love, and therefore human community, has some significant limitations. This is what Bonhoeffer says. 
Tell me if you agree with this. Human love is by its very nature desire. Desire for human community. But where it can no longer expect its desire to be fulfilled, there it stops short. Namely, in the face of an enemy. There it turns into hatred, contempt, and calumny. Right here is the point where spiritual love begins. This is why human love becomes personal hatred when it encounters genuine spiritual love, which does not desire, but serves. So whatever you might think about this binary black and white, light and darkness, good and evil thing, I think perhaps you would agree with me that human love is not naturally given to embrace of the enemy. Human love does not uh, instinctually love its enemies. He gets very poetic here and says, Human love breeds hothouse flowers. (laughs) Spiritual love creates the fruits that grow healthily in accord with God's goodwill in the rain and storm and sunshine of God's outdoors. And by the way, our cherry tree, which was planted in memoriam for our uh, church planting coach and mentor, Larry Sherman, is producing cherries, gangbusters right now. Uh, I pulled four cups of cherries off there um, a couple days ago, and Tracy made a cherry pie out of it which we will enjoy, um, a few of us, because it's not a very big pie, um, while we're eating our, our lunch uh, together after our service today. But there's more that are ready to be picked. So if you want to um, have a, a tactile and um, tasty um, illustration of the idea of spiritual love bearing fruit, you can go get some of those cherries afterwards. They have pits, though, so be careful. Human love is not naturally given to love for enemies. Bonhoeffer says, spiritual love proves itself in that everything it says and does commends Christ. That's the litmus test for spiritual love, which leads to spiritual community. In everything it says and does, it commends Christ. The best and most powerful example of this that I have seen in years, I saw just this week. How many of you saw the the video uh, this week of when the families of the victims in Charleston had a chance to address the uh, the shooter? Yeah. How many of you made it through that whole video without shedding a single tear? <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I urge you to go. Watch it. It was incredible. These beautiful human people who had just lost their mothers, their sisters, their sons. Within hours of the event, had a chance to confront confront the murderer. And what they said over and over again was, I forgive you. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I know that's what we're supposed to do. 
I couldn't believe that they were actually able to do it. Those dear saints welcomed a stranger into their midst. That's not an easy thing to do, even if you don't know what's about to happen, which obviously they didn't. I think many of us, maybe most of us, if we were them and he was him, might be inclined to say, hmm, how about you email the pastor? Are you sure that you want to be here right now? This doesn't seem like a good cultural fit. Maybe we wouldn't say those things out loud, but we would all be inclined to think them to some extent or another. But they welcomed the stranger in their midst, which was itself a pretty significant act of spiritual love. Right? And then after what happened for them to, to go the extra billion miles to extending forgiveness was, I was a mess. I just couldn't even believe it. If you haven't watched that video, please go watch it. Here's what we had to learn about community. Here's what our uh, Avon moment was. One of them. That community, um, if it's if it's just a, a bunch of uh, people who kind of look and act and think and play and work like you, it's not really a complete community. And um, sometimes in an effort to, to engage culture, which is part of our mission, we were uh, unwittingly and unwillingly excluding other parts of culture. Sometimes um, in an effort to be clever, we probably made people who weren't clever feel less than important. Sometimes in an effort to reach out to um, college students, we probably didn't do a great job with um, retirees or with elementary school students. Sometimes in an effort to uh, build a very strong local physical presence community in the city of Rochester, we made people who lived in the suburbs feel like they were second-class citizens. I could go on and on and on. All kinds of different little versions of, of excluding the stranger. And that's the difference between our dream of community, our visionary dream, and God's visionary dream. And you, you can't have just your visionary dream. It's never big enough. Even now, with the awareness of all the things I just said, our visionary dream is not big enough. <laughs> what does it say? God's grace will speedily <laughs> destroy that. God's vision of community is much uglier than we want it to be and therefore much more beautiful. God's vision of community is much poorer than we want it to be, and therefore much more rich. 
God's vision of community has walls that are broken down instead of walls that are being built higher. So I'd like to conclude this morning with uh, a reading from Ephesians chapter 2. about Christian community. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you can, or you can just listen to this. Ephesians 2, let's start with verse 14 and see how far we go. For he is our peace. In his flesh, in his body, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, Paul's talking about two groups, Jews and Gentiles. But that message applies across any dividing wall of hostility you can imagine in our culture today. He is our peace who has made the two one, who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that is between us. That is the reality of Christian community. Whether we want to live into it and be richly blessed and changed or instead whether we want to stick with our own tiny little shriveled dream of community that has these walls intact that we're not even aware of, well, that's our choice. That's the choice that we will have to make as a congregation over and over and over again. And we never solve this. It never gets perfect. We never see the complete finished product. But we do have to make the choice every day. Are we going to be a human community governed by human love, which is based on desire and which has no capacity to love the enemy and the stranger? Or are we going to be a spiritual community which is based on spiritual love, which is based on service? Well, I think we all have our preference. Now it's a matter of making it happen. And uh, let's pray together because, boy, this is not a, this is not a human-sized task. Gracious God, um, as we mourn this week for our brothers and sisters from Emmanuel AME, we were inspired by them as well. Inspired by their initial welcome of the stranger inspired by their incredible capacity to forgive the most atrocious acts of violence. We see in them, truly, your Son, Jesus Christ, who faced with the depths of human sin and violence, responded not with violence of his own, but with forgiveness. Who in his life modeled true spiritual community by welcoming those who had been shunned, those who were not welcome 
at the other table. May we now, as a community of artisan church, looking ahead to our second decade, may we have the strength and resolve and courage and wisdom to make the choice to follow the example of our brothers and sisters in Charleston, to follow the example most of all of Christ himself in opening our doors, in letting go of our tiny dreams and of being consumed and filled and changed by the big, immeasurable dream of spiritual community that you present to us. Make it so in our midst, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know how I often say that um, when we take the sacrament, when we, when we receive the bread and the, and the cup, that we do so as an act of solidarity and community with Christians all around the city who take communion together, with Christians all around the world who take communion together, and I even sometimes get all space-time continuum about it because Christians have been doing this together for thousands of years now. Maybe today we can take this sacrament in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Charleston who, who come to the same table, the same Savior, the same body and blood as we do. And may it be for us a reminder that Christ's table is a level table, an open table, and a place of welcome. So come and receive this grace extended to you by Jesus his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And may it fill your hearts and your souls with that spiritual food that only he can provide. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.